Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. And welcome to the History of England, episode 264D, Rebel Queen number 5, Resistance. Yesterday we left Northumberland riding out from London at the head of 1,500 men, northwards to the town of Ware. Since Mary wrote her letter of defiance on the 10th of July, what had been happening to her cause? In fact, Mary's magnificent household had swung into action earlier than Northumberland's had. From the 8th of July, Letters had started to be sent from Kenning Hall to the network that Rochester had built up. Letters had gone to Sir George Somerset, Sir William Drury, Sir William Wardergrave, telling them to ignore the council in London to come and join Mary. The following day, letters kept pouring from Rochester's pen to be signed, hurriedly taken to the waiting hands of loyal horsemen, whose clattering on the cobbles as they rode from the courtyard to their distant destination. On the 9th, a letter to Sir Edward Hastings, would gather support in the Thames Valley, letters written to towns such as Great Yarmouth and far away as Chester. Often these letters assumed that Mary was Queen rather than the lawless rebel. Lord Stourton was appointed Lord Lieutenant. Joining Mary required the subject to break their basic instincts of self-preservation and the carefully taught obedience to the state build up over a thousand years, but there were reasons that you might go and join her. One of those was religion, Mary had bravely and proudly stood out for traditional religion. She had done so not just that she could continue to practice the religion of her forefathers, but to consciously encourage those who, like her, could not adjust to the innovations of the reformers. Some therefore rushed to Mary's side for that reason. The lawyer, Richard Morgan, made his way from London. 
Lord Mordaunt's son came from Bedfordshire, so Leonard Chamberlain tried to raise Oxfordshire and Berkshire for Mary. But there were plenty of Protestants who were for Mary. London was the most religiously advanced place in the country, and yet the majority in their hearts supported Mary. Because the assumption had always been that Mary was the heir, there'd been no time to digest this news about Jane. But more because Mary was the daughter of the big man, Henry VIII. Hated or loathed it, in 16th century England, Henry's memory cast a long, powerful, compelling and slightly podgy shadow. Mary was his flesh. Mary was his blood. Mary had been his heir, and they were loyal to his memory. And lastly, there was hatred. Northumberland was the most public of the councillors, and Jane's cause was associated with him. In London, Northumberland was hated because he'd removed the protector and had him executed. In East Anglia, they had longer memories. They thought back to 1549, the camping time, the glorious camp at Mousehold Heath, and their leader, Robert Kett. For a brief six weeks, the downtrodden ordinary people of East Anglia had breathed the breath of freedom. They had elected their representatives to council. They had walked to the court held under the Reformation tree and watched as one of their own dispensed justice openly and equably in the name of King Edward. And then they'd watched as the state had come and destroyed that dream, slaughtering men by the thousands in the Battle of Dussingdale, hanging men in the marketplace of Norwich and hunting them down. And the name of their defeat, humiliation and servitude, was Northumberland. It was he that had led the army that crushed them, and they would have their revenge. And so men came. And Mary was careful not to antagonise the locals in East Anglia, who'd shown in 1549 they were sympathetic to the Reformed religion. She probably emphasised that while she would prefer people to follow the old ways, she would not force them. She even treated some Catholics more harshly, such as the Sheriff of Ipswich. When he arrived at Mary's, she berated him for being somewhat slow and stubborn and less mindful of his duty that he ought to have been, despite the repeated requests of her letters. Others around the country who wanted support did not come, fearing to make the wrong decision, but it's clear that if Queen Jane was able to survive the coup, she would face a hard task afterwards bringing the country back together. But by the time Northumberland rode out of London, many big names were coming to Mary's side. By the 12th of July, Mary had moved south from Kenning Hall into Suffolk to the old Howard stronghold of Framlingham. Framlingham was a castle much safer, much better defended than Kenning Hall. It was close to the sea if flight should be required. And so it was at Framlingham that Sir Richard Southwell, the Earl of Sussex and the Earl of Bath joined her court. On the same day, the 12th, the town of Bury proclaimed the new Queen but they proclaimed Queen Mary, not Queen Jane, and they sent a message to Northumberland at the head of his army that Mary would give him breakfast, dinner and supper. The following day, Norwich also declared for Mary, sent arms to Framlingham. The local Lord Wentworth had already declared for Jane, but Mary was relentless, sending her local servants directly to talk to him with the message that he should take a good care for himself and his family, not to forsake the Queen's cause, which would be to the perpetual dishonour of his house. Wentworth eventually knew when he was beaten. He replied that although he had pledged his support for Jane, his inner conscience constantly proclaimed that Mary had the greater right to the throne, and he promised to turn his coat. So the army for Mary at her castle was growing steadily. It was a ragtag army, sure enough, with nothing like the quality of arms that Northumberland possessed. It had no artillery. 
Its leadership had nowhere near the military experience of Northumberland and his commanders. But Mary could look around her and know that she and her household were no longer alone. Back at the Tower of London then, leadership of the council was now in the hands of Jane's father, the Duke of Suffolk. Suffolk was a much less forceful and competent man than Northumberland. And at the very moment that Northumberland's firm hand had been removed from the tiller of state, the political clouds had begun to darken, black clouds arriving from the east. On the 14th of July, with Northumberland just departed, the news arrived of the defection of the Earls of Sussex and Bath. News then came from Yorkshire that Lord Dacre had declared for Mary. There were disturbances rumoured from Oxfordshire and Berkshire. Suffolk was deeply worried. He'd shown before his lack of confidence in his own capability. One evening, the Marquis of Winchester left the court to go back to his home. To his astonishment, when he tried to leave the tower, he was told that he could not. Confused, he asked the guard why not, and he was told that Suffolk had given orders that none of the council were to leave court. Demanding the keys, Winchester were told that they had been given up to the Queen. The councillors were trapped in the tower. None of this could have helped any feeling of trust and companionship, and a siege mentality began to develop. William Cecil had been the least convinced of Jane's supporters from the start, refusing even to write the letter of defiance to Mary. Although he had ordered his estates to supply troops to Northumberland, his agent had contrived to throw every possible obstacle in the path of recruitment, and you have to suspect private, secret orders from Cecil himself. And now, Cecil was threatening to leave court. John Cheek drew him to one side. Maybe he reminded him of Mary's Catholicism, maybe of his duty to Jane. Either way, Cheek persuaded Cecil to stay. For now. How much this rising anxiety and the sullen hostility of the city affected Jane herself at this stage, we don't know. But it's quite difficult to believe the constant trickle of bad news didn't build a sense of dread in her. So maybe to distract herself, Jane turned her attention to her coronation, which must inevitably follow once this affair was done. So on the 14th of July, she ordered all the jewels and possessions which previous queens had held be delivered to her chambers. Jane had already shown her dislike of fine clothing and riches, but she was equally well aware that for her to be a queen, she must look like a queen, and so she must dress like a queen. And her husband Guildford must look like a suitable consort too. So there is then this image of the 16-year-old Jane and her 18-year-old husband in a room filled with the treasures of past ages, a collection of riches, gold, silver, jewels that she and Guildford would have never seen the like before. Jane would have loved those richly decorated books, one of them decorated with acorns of gold. While they ran the treasures through their fingers, more arrived from the Palace of Westminster, maybe for Guildford specifically. A sword girdle of red silk and gold. A coronet for a duke set with five roses of diamonds. Six small pointed diamonds. One table emerald. Six great rubies. Seven blue sapphires. 38 great pearls with a cap of crimson velvet. There was no sign of concern in Northumberland and the army. By the end of the 14th, he'd made good time and he'd reached the town of Ware, where John Gates joined him. Close behind, leaving London on the 15th, came the artillery train. Northumberland's army was growing all the time as bands joined him and he also knew there were supporters that would reach him in the days following. His son Robert Dudley had been in North Norfolk, disrupting people from joining Mary, and he joined his father at Ware. 
and probably Northumberland's other sons joined him there with the Dudley Manred. On the 15th, Northumberland continued northwards, pausing to sack the house of John Huddleston at Sawston, which had sheltered the rebel Mary just a few days before. North of him were the Earl of Oxford and the Lord Admiral Lord Clinton, who could also at some place along the way be expected to join him. The council had been warned they might need to send more troops and they could supply him if needs be, and Mary had no artillery. On the 16th of July, Northumberland came into Cambridge and there he had to stay for a few days to allow his artillery to catch up and to give as much chance as possible for other bands to join. No doubt, news was reaching Northumberland as well that Mary's support was growing, but he continued to feel comfortable. In fact, his route to take the battle to Mary suggests and oozes confidence. A direct route from London to Framlingham, or even Kenning Hall, does not go via Cambridge. Northumberland's route took him to Cambridge, both to build the sides of his army, but also to block Mary's escape route by land. Northumberland still believed this could only end one way. Of course, given that Framlingham is close to the Suffolk coast, if Mary were to flee to her imperial friends, then the best route would be to go via sea. But Northumberland had already provided cover for that little idea. The Thames estuary was being patrolled by a squadron of six warships. It's not clear exactly when they were sent, but they were there by the 13th or 14th, so their existence is another indication that Northumberland had planned, but he'd only planned for flight or submission, not for fight. So Mary was trapped between Northumberland's hammer and Brooke, the commander of the fleet's, anvil. Nonetheless, the situation was clearly deteriorating a little bit, and the news that was reaching him would not have been encouraging, nothing to laugh at. Back in London, outside the Tower, things were going from bad to worse because the hostility of the citizens was growing increasingly obvious. Shiver wrote that It seems to us there were many people in the realm that love Mary and hate the Duke and his children. So on the Sunday, the council enlisted the power of the church to help their cause. Bishop Nicholas Ridley mounted the pulpit at St Paul's Cross. Ridley brought all the weight of his preaching talents to bear down on the Princess Mary and her cause. Mary and Elizabeth were base-born, he declared, because they were illegitimate. But for once, even Ridley was unable to rouse the crowd. In fact, many muttered sore against the preachers. Rumours reached the city that Mary's force had climbed to 30,000 strong, and whether right or wrong, it all encouraged people to talk about their real feelings. Comfortable, they were not alone. Many began to describe Jane as the falsely styled queen. The guard around the tower was doubled. The government was now terrified of its own citizens. And again, Shiver reported, A strong guard is being mounted round the tower where the queen and the council are to protect her from a popular tumult. For they know that my Lady Mary is loved throughout the kingdom and that the people are aware of their wicked compliance in allowing the duke to cheat her of her right. Jane and her council did all they could. Richard Rich was sent to East Anglia to his estates to bring more support to Northumberland. More proclamations were posted around the city. We understand that the Lady Mary does not cease by letters in her name, provoked by her adherents, enemies of this realm, to publish and notify slanderously to divers of my subjects matters derogatory to our title and dignity royal, with the slander of certain of our nobility and council. We have thought it meet to admonish and exhort you as our true and faithful subjects to remain fast in your obeisance. 
The letter went on to punch the bruise, as someone once called the noble art of messaging. It's not just that Jane's the rightful queen, it said. Mary is just a stalking horse. She is a stalking horse for the Pope and his minions for the destruction of the true religion and for her imperial friends. In Cambridge by the evening of the 16th of July, this news would have reached Northumberland. Meanwhile, disturbances in Buckinghamshire had further put the wind up the council and they needed to hold back a force to deal with that. So that meant that no further men would be coming Northumberland's way. Nonetheless, that day, the Cambridge University Vice-Chancellor, Edwin Sands, gave a bravura performance, brandaging a Catholic missile and chalice captured from Sawston in triumph. But at supper, Northumberland cracked a rather grim gag to the Vice-Chancellor. Masters, pray for us that we speed well, for if not, ye shall be made bishops and we deacons, for you shall have mitres on your head and we shall all be tonsured. Now this falls firmly into the category of a gag that is way too clever for its own good. Decoded, it means that the Vice-Chancellor would be wearing a mitre of flames, i.e. he'd be burned for heresy, and Northumberland would be definitively tonsured by having his head cut off. As I say, it's hardly a rib tickler. Nonetheless, the artillery had caught up. Northumberland and John Gates could now set off with their force at 3,000 foot and 1,000 horse, 30 artillery pieces. On the morning of the 18th of July, they set out for Bury St Edmunds towards Mary, confident that Oxford and Clinton would soon swell their numbers, and that with the finer quality of their army, with their artillery, with the fleet and the estuary, they'd win the day with ease. 25 miles away in Bury, critical news awaited them that would change the picture once more. 